The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. They said, well, how did it go? And I'm like, it, it didn't turn out well, put it that way. <clears throat> when, you, when you leave a service and your wife says, you know, she's usually the encourager, but it, <laughs> she had to be brutally honest with me this morning. And remember, uh, the sermon this morning, if it's short or long, I'm not sure, but you did pray for the fruit of patience. And uh, <clears throat> so you may need a second round uh, before we're over. And... Um, well, again, just uh, glad that you're here this morning. We hope that Pastor Darren and I don't know that Pastor Nelson is getting as much rest as in guard duty, but I hope that Pastor Darren and his family have a, have a good vacation. If you would turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. It's quite in a different direction from where we've been for a while in the book of Mark. So <clears throat> it is in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 4. Some of you may have heard the name of Ted Williams. Ted Williams was born in 1918, and he would become probably one of America's greatest uh, baseball players. As a young adult, he signed with the, the Boston Red Sox, and he stayed with them for 19 seasons. Um, I think there was a couple interruptions to serve in, in the war, the Korean War and, and World War II. Uh, but for the most part, uh, you could say that Williams lived an extraordinary life. Some would say even an American dream, at, at least from the outside looking in. He seemed to have everything. However, as the saying goes, all good things must come to an end. And that leaves the question, what, what's at the end? What's at the end of this life? Ecclesiastes 7.2 says that death is the destiny of all men, and the living should take this to heart. You see, that was a problem uh, for Ted Williams, and it's a problem for many people today is that he wasn't ready to die. And even more problematic is he wasn't ready for eternity. He didn't believe that there was anything beyond what we see here in the natural life. He grew up in a Christian home, ironically. His mother they called Salvation May. She worked for the Salvation Army. So he was under the constant teachings of, a, of a, and that Christian influence growing up. But he somehow came to the conclusion even under that influence, that there wasn't any God. He became a, an atheist. And so he lived his life accordingly. At one point he said, all I want in life is that when I walk down the street, folks will say, there goes the greatest hitter that ever lived. And to be fair to Mr. Williams, we know that he probably uh, was one of the, the greatest hitter that ever lived. He became an American uh, household name, a baseball legend. But even in all that, there was still no credit. There was no acknowledgement, no thankfulness, anything to God. In fact, he's also quoted as saying, no one could throw a fastball past me. God himself could come down from heaven, and he couldn't throw it past me. Now, that's an interesting statement from, a, from an atheist. It's interesting that, that those who claim no belief in God typically have the most to say about him. And I'll just say this about atheism. It may be a good way for some people to live, but it's, it's really a bad way to, lie, to, to, uh, to die with. It's a good way to live for some people, but it's really a bad way to die. You see, when someone lives in denial of, of God's reality, consequently, that also means that there's no hope for, for anything after this life. So, a lot of people do, they go to extreme measures to make this life extend as long as it can. And that's not unusual. I think we all do that to a degree. We want to stay on this earth as long as, as possible through uh, technology and health and different things. But for the atheist, what do they do? There's no hope beyond the grave. We know that there's hope beyond the grave. But for the atheist who, who says there's, no, there's nothing after this life, what is, what is their hope? So therefore, they, they have to come up with some other alternative reality. On July 5th, 2002, Ted Williams passed away at the age of 83. They took his body, they put it on a plane, and they flew it to Phoenix, Arizona. 
And there, there was a team of professionals at the Alcor Life Extension Foundation. That name tells you a lot, the Alcor Life Extension Foundation. And they began the process of removing his head from his body. And then they placed his head into a steel can filled with liquid nitrogen. Now the hope is this, by preserving the body, that the, the hope is that someday through this process called cryonics, which is a, a, a very quick freezing at, at, severe, uh, at low temperatures, uh, the hope is that someday when medical technology advances, life will be restored to the brain. And the head will have the capability of growing a new body through cell reproduction. Now, what kind of faith does it take in, in science and technology to have this hope? But that's the hope. That's the only thing people have to turn to if they don't believe in God and his truth. Certain members of Ted's family also made this statement in their hope of seeing him again. It says, our father was not a religious man. The faith that many people place in God, we place in science and other human endeavors. And while it's true that God may allow us to experience the benefits of science and technology through extended health, longer life. One thing God will never relinquish is his authority over life itself. He is the creator. Whether it be physically or spiritually, this power belongs to God alone, and he'll never give that to another person or to the created. In 2 Kings chapter 4, I want to examine how God used the prophet Elisha to actually bring a resurrection to restore the life of a Shunammite woman's son and bring him back from the dead. And just to set up a few of the characters, the Shunammite woman, we don't know her name. We don't know the name of the young man. Elisha, he was uh, mentored by Elijah, and Elijah was taken up to heaven. A double portion of his spirit's, uh, spirit was given to Elisha. So Elisha was a godly man. He was a prophet in the Old Testament. And then there's a, another person his servant, Elisha's servant, uh, Gehazi. Uh, the Arkansas term is Gehazi, but uh, Gehazi is the, uh, the, the term. And, um, and he wasn't exactly, if we were to read scripture before and after this particular uh, account, he wasn't the most uh, godly man. Uh, so that just kind of gives you a little bit of, of a reference to who these people were. The year would have been around 2900 B.C., when the boy's mother, a godly woman, she was living in the region of Shunem. And the prophet Elisha would often pass by her house. And when he would pass by her house, uh, she would invite him in, give him something to eat. And what Elisha would do, he was on what they call a ministry circuit. The prophets would go from village to village and region to region. Uh, not too much unlike it was years ago. Perhaps some of you remember what they used to call circuit preachers. I uh, had a great-great-uncle who was a Methodist preacher, and he would go on horseback and make his circuit because people didn't have a uh, preacher for every church. So maybe once a month, twice a month, you would gather as the church, and that's when the preacher would come through and deliver a message, and then he would go on to the next town. So that's what Elisha was, was doing as a prophet. And so when she would see him, she would invite him in, give him a meal to eat, and just serve him as a man of God. Well, at some point, she decided to go even further. She talked to her husband. She said, perhaps we need to build him a room, a room with just a, a simple room with a table and a lamp and a bed, a place that he can pray and study and just reflect on the things of God. So they agreed, and they built this room. And some of you have heard of what they call the prophet's chamber. And again, there's perhaps some of those still today, but this is when the circuit preachers would go around. They would have a place not only to eat, but a place to rest. And they would stay in people's homes and in some places in the world today, they still have what is referred to as, as a prophet's chamber. Elijah and Elisha both uh, give accounts of, of, of having that prophet's chamber. So, um, so in gratitude, Elisha wanted to give something back to her. So he began to ask her, what, what is it that you need? And she says, well, she says, I don't need anything really. She was content with life. He says, well, what about do you need a, a word with the army or the, the government? And she says, I live among a people, my own people. She was a contented lady. But through his servant, Gehazi, um, she learned that, he, that she didn't have a son. And it was also in the sense that it was like Abraham and Sarah, that she didn't have a son and she wasn't going to have a son because her 
husband was, was too old. So to ever have a son, it was going to have to be in the miraculous sense. So Elisha told the lady, said, this time next year, you will have a son. And so she conceived, and sure enough, just as the promise was given, she had a son. And now what this, um, after the conception, the boy says he grew, he says he grew up, but it's in this, not so much as into adulthood. They believe he was probably 10 to 12 years old. And he got old enough to where he could go to the fields with his father. And when he was in the fields one day, he, he had a severe headache. And we don't know what for sure what it was. Some people believe it may have been a heat stroke. But he had a headache, and he was sent back to his mother. And there with his mother, he died in her arms. And so it's interesting what this lady did next. What we think she would do would be to, to gather the family, to start the mourning process, to start preparing for a funeral. But that's not what she did. She took the boy, and she took him up to the prophet's chamber. She laid him on the prophet's bed, and she shut the door, and then she started the journey to Mount Carmel in search of the prophet Elisha. And then when she finds him there, and his servant Gehazi, she pours out her soul, reminding Elisha of his, pro of his promise. And the promise was given in the context of not just, Elisha, you didn't give me this son just for a season. The promise was meant that you were going to give me to a son, I would be blessed with a son, and to adulthood. And so that's where we're going to pick up the story in, in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 29. If you would stand with me. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 29 through 37. Now remember, the scene here is that she is standing before Elisha. She's just poured out her soul, and she's asking for Elisha's help according to the promise that was given. And then so then he, speaking of Elisha, said to Gehazi, Gird up your loins and take my staff in your hand and go your way. If you meet any man, do not salute him, and if anyone salutes you, do not answer him. And lay my staff on the lad's face. The mother, the mother of the lad said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. And he arose and followed her. And then Gehazi passed on before them and laid the staff on the lad's face. But there was no sound or response. So he returned to meet him and told him, The lad is not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, behold, the lad was dead and laid on his bed. So he entered and shut the door behind them both and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth and his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself on him. And the flesh of the child became warm. Then he returned and walked in the house once back and forth and went up and stretched himself on him. And the lad sneezed seven times and the lad opened his eyes. He called Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite woman. So he called her. And when she came into him, he said, Take up your son. And she went and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground. And she took up her son and went out. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for, God, that you are the, um, the one who brings resurrection. You're the one who has the power of life and the power of death. God, we thank you for uh, the examples, uh, God, that you give us continues through the Old Testament and New Testament of, of your goodness and your grace and your willingness, uh, God, just to see dead men, dead men live. And, and, Lord, we know from a spiritual sense of, where all men are in their sin and trespasses. And God, the same power that raised this young boy from the dead is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and the same power that raises us from the dead. And God, I just pray that this truth would bear on our hearts this morning. And God, that we would just have a renewed interest and trust and a faith in the power of God to do the um, what's impossible with man. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This young boy was dead. There, there was no hope of life. He had been dead. The actual uh, trip to, to Mount Carmel would have been about 20 miles, and this lady was on a donkey and had a servant with her, so uh, very unlikely she even did it in a day's time. So the time Elisha got back, uh, that's, what, that's what she was dealing with. That's what he was dealing with, a, a, a young boy that was, was dead. But, but this story is a story of about a mother's faith and a prophet's prayer and the power of God. And life prevailed uh, where death once reigned. Uh, Darren said, Pastor Darren says, I have to have a, a big idea. Everyone has to have a big idea if they stand behind this pulpit. So, so this is what it is, that life comes through God alone. 
physically or spiritually, only God can resurrect the dead. Only God can resurrect the dead. The Shunammite woman had a choice. She could prepare for a funeral, or she could prepare based on the promises of the man of God. She could prepare for resurrection. And we know that she chose to prepare for a resurrection, and that faith led her to action. It led her to the feet of Elisha. And in the same manner, God has given us a great commission. He says to go in all nations, preach the gospel to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. He says that we're to preach life. We're the ones who have the message of life, the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are preaching life to people who are physically alive but spiritually dead. You may have someone in your life even this morning, probably all of us do, either in family, at work, a friendship. Maybe you've already given up on them. could be a son, a, a daughter, a mother, a father. Maybe you've fasted, you've prayed, you've, you've witnessed, and it seems like they've only grew worse. You can't grow worse than, than dead, but it seems like they're deader now than they ever have been. Going deeper into sin and deeper into darkness, and the things of God are even more resistant to and you've lost hope of a resurrection. There may have been a time that, that you grasped the promises of God, that God would move and that you would see this person come to Christ, but now you're at a faith level anyway. You've buried them. You said there's, there's no hope for this person. And, and no hope is one of the most ironic statements that a Christian can make. Is it not no hope for the Christian? And we've all said it at times. We've all said there's no hope for that person or there's no hope for this situation. It's ironic because hope is the message of, of the gospel. Hope of eternal life. Hope of forgiveness. Hope of seeing Jesus face to face someday. Hope for the downcast and hope for those that are steeped in sin. And hope for our own resurrection someday. So maybe the problem isn't so much that we've lost hope. We all hope in something. It's just sometimes misdirected. We misplace that hope. And that's the temptation for Christians. We often put our hope in something other than God himself. That's the temptation. How many times do we put our hope in the dead? We take someone that we care about or that we love and we begin to witness to them and we want to see signs of life. And just as Elisha laid himself, he became personally involved with this boy and it says the body began to wax warm. In other words, he started to show signs of life, but yet there wasn't life still there. And it says he continued, and he was persevered, but he didn't expect that boy to just bring life to himself. He knew it had to be the power of God. And sometimes we expect people just to raise themselves, to all of a sudden be interested in the things of God, or to have their heart changed we put our hope in certain strategies and clever marketing skills if we can just do this or do that then maybe that person will come to Christ I think we often complicate the simplicity of our faith our hope should be simple when we're dealing with people that are spiritually dead and we have that hope that they'll someday be resurrected and be saved our hope should be simple even childlike Hebrew 4 says that we can approach the throne of God with great boldness. You see, we may not have a prophet's bed, but we do have a throne that he says to approach with great boldness because at that throne there is a high priest. And it's a high priest who says he sympathizes with our weaknesses. And he's constantly, day and night, in intercession for us. And again, if you know the account of the Old Testament where they, only the high priest once a year could go into the Holy of Holies, and if he wasn't ceremonially prepared and clean, he would die in the presence of God. But yet at the cross, it says that curtain, that curtain was torn. And so now as believers, we can go directly into the presence of God, directly into the high uh, priest's throne of where he sits and where he hears and where he listens. doesn't matter what the need is this morning. You could have a physical need, a mental need, a, a spiritual need. Our hope is in Christ. Now, the mother in her faith, I believe there's three contributions 
that, that leave us as, as an example for us today. First of all, it was her character. Her character put her in a position to be blessed. And this isn't talking about a, a work-based kind of um, salvation where we earn the favor of God. But it, it does talk about putting ourselves in a position to be blessed by the Lord. This lady, by all accounts, according to Scripture, was a godly lady. She was a kind and gracious woman. She was a loving wife and a loving mother. She took care of the needs of God's people. And this is the account of Elisha, but <clears throat> we can assume that that's who she was. I'm sure that she took care of many people. And because of her faith, it led her to do many good works in the name of the Lord. You want to get God's attention? Then you love his bride. You love his church. You put yourself, a lot of times we think of what big things can we do for the Lord. And it's interesting, you can do big things. Even the scripture talks about that there was a group of people who said, didn't we even do the miraculous? And yet they never knew him. Yet you had another group of people that says, when did we serve you, Lord? And he says, whenever you give a cup of cold water, when you did this or when you give food in my name. This is what leads to godliness. This is putting ourselves in a position to be blessed by God. God consistently, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, he makes a direct correlation with a person's character, with that pursuit of holiness, with that desire to obey him and follow him. There's a direct correlation with that and the blessings or lack of blessings of God. The blessings of God are perhaps even the discipline of the Lord for those who know him. Psalms 34, verse 15, says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. Now, imagine that picture that, that he's open to their cry. This is somebody who is troubled and distressed, just like this lady was uh, in the account in, the, in 2 Kings. And yet we have the, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his, and his ears are open to hear them. So when you go before the Lord... He's listening. He's watching you. And again, in the context, it's talking about he's protecting and he has your best interest uh, at heart. Now contrast that with Psalm 66, verse 18. It says, if I regard sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If I regard sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear. doesn't mean that he can't hear. He chooses not to hear. Because if he did hear, in the sense that he answered your prayer, given everything that you're asking for, then he would be condoning sin. Not only would he be condoning sin, he would be encouraging it. To, to allow one of his children to continually live in outright sin and then still to answer prayers, he would be encouraging you to continue in that sin with no thought of repentance. And also Isaiah 59, 2, it says, Your sins have hidden his face from you so that you will not hear. We have a picture that's very... Uh, very specific this morning that sin leads to God not hearing our sin we see that even in the New Testament it says that if you have anything against a brother to leave your offering at the altar and go make things right it says that you're in a squabble with your wife and of course that's vice versa it says that the Lord will not hear your prayers what the Lord is talking about is that your righteousness and we know ultimately that our ultimate righteousness from a salvation sense is only by the blood of Christ. That's our holiness. He sees us in perfection in that sense. But we also have the choice to pursue righteousness, to pursue holiness and godliness, and to, to line our lives up with, with what Scripture says. If we were to sum these Scriptures up that I just read, it's this, is that we should have no expectations, regardless of our claim to faith, we should have no expectations if we, for God to hear our prayers, if we are willfully walking contrary to God's commandments. That's the truth here. Because a guilty conscience and a sincere faith cannot coincide in the same heart. They don't make compatible roommates. One has to go. The point is this, pursuing holiness, and when I say pursuing holiness, we're not talking about perfection. Perfection will happen someday in heaven, but to pursue holiness means that you're setting yourself apart for God's purposes. You're allowing his word to wash through you. You're studying his word. You're praying. And you're, the bent of your life is to honor him in all things. That's what it means to pursue holiness. So to pursue holiness and renounce sin 
it creates the environment, the heart's environment, for faith to exist, and not only exist, but to grow. It puts us in that position to be blessed by God, and that's where this lady was. I wonder if that lady knew the first time she ever gave Elisha that first meal, that that was setting her in uh, positionally uh, because of her character and her love for God and love for God's people, that that was putting her in a position that would one day result in the resurrection of a dead son. Not only did this woman have a godly character, but that she had a firm grasp on reality. And I just want to spend a, a few minutes on this one because I believe this is where a lot of times we, we miss it as Christians, where a lot of unbelievers miss it. She had a faith that could move mountains. There's no doubt about that. But what her faith didn't do, what it couldn't do, what it was never meant to do, was shield her from the troubles and heartaches of life. Contrary to popular teaching that you'll hear sometimes today, faith never promises a trouble-free life. In fact, it's quite the contrary. Jesus uh, spoke of this often, of this reality in John 16. He says, I have told you these things, speaking about troubles and tribulations, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. The scriptures are very upfront. Even Peter was speaking about the persecutions and all that would come to the Christian. Even those who desired to live a godly life would face persecution and troubles. And he says, I tell you this so it doesn't catch you off guard. And see, now we're peddling in many areas of the world and even in America this gospel, this false narrative, this false gospel that if you come to Christ, then everything must be perfect. Everything will be okay. True faith doesn't deny reality. True faith actually embraces reality. Jesus says, this is your reality. You're going to have trouble. But don't worry. Take heart. I'm greater than your trouble. That's exactly what this Shunammite woman did. Her reality was that she had a dead son. He wasn't sick. He wasn't asleep. He wasn't in a coma. He was dead. He was physically dead. And here's the significance of her understanding this reality. Anything short of her understanding that her son was really dead, this reality, would not require the miraculous intervention of God. In other words, if we deny reality, then we can deny God himself. We can deny God's truth. It's important to, where, to understand where this opposition comes from, this opposition to reality. What's, what's the source exactly? We go back to the garden. We see the first instance of opposition to reality. Eve rejected reality with one question. Did God really say? Is, is this the reality? Is this really what is going to happen if you disobey God? Satan is characterized in Scripture as the God of this world, meaning that the Lord has allowed him a certain amount of influence over this world system that's designed to be countercultural to anything that resembles, remotely resembles, reality or truth itself. Satan is the spirit of deception. He's the, characterized as the father of all lies, and that's in direct opposition to who? The Holy Spirit, who's known as the spirit of truth. And so when you say the spirit of truth, in that sense, that means that he is the spirit of reality. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin and judgment and righteousness. So when, when he's bearing down uh, on a sinner's heart that they're a sinner, he's bringing the reality of sin to that person. Perhaps they've lived in a false reality and deception all their life, but when sin comes to the heart and, it's, and the, the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction, he's bringing reality to that person's heart. And it's contrary to what the spirit of deception has been bearing on that heart all their life, perhaps. Romans 1.25, under this world system, under the, the evil, and it says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped the creature rather than the creator. They ex exchanged it, the truth of God, for a lie and worshiped and served the creature 
rather than the creator. And you see what happens when the truth is exchanged for a lie? First, it's exchanging reality for a false reality. That's what's happening. When people live in a world of false reality, the scripture says it's a natural consequence. A natural consequence of making this exchange is that the creature, which is mankind, becomes the object of worship instead of the creator. Simply put, here's what's happened. We declare ourselves to be God. And in that reality, we have no need for the true God. We have no need for the scripture or the Christian God because we've created our own reality. We've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And that makes us worthy of worship. Let's look at one example. We could, we could name hundreds, thousands of examples. Today's society, all through history, where the, the, a lie has been ex- or the truth has been exchanged for a lie. But let's just look at one that's uh, common in our society today, and that's the issue of gender. Okay? That's, that's something that's in the news, and it's on the forefront of um, everything we do in our culture. The truth, God's word says that God created male and female, man and woman. That's, that's reality. That's truth. But now we're living in a culture that's exchanged that truth for a lie. And if you were to do a Google search on just the definition of gender, you would find that there's really no number. It's, it's like an infinite number because it says gender is only limited by the imagination. 2014... Facebook, I guess when they first started, had male and female. 2014, they extended it to 58 different genders. Because how you identify whatever you believe yourself to be, and again, it's only limited by the imagination, it's the reality you create, re, you, that you create, that's your reality, that's your truth. But regardless of your biological structure, your reality is whatever you want it to be. We're living in a day and age now where even in California they're trying to pass a law where as young as five-year-olds in kindergarten can go into a classroom without the parents' consent, without even the parents' knowledge, and identify whatever they want to identify as. They can even give them the opposite sex's name. And there's nothing the parent can do about it. And so now there's the talk about, okay, what happens with transcripts and college and, and all of this and what's actually on their, their birth certificate. Many birth certificates now, it's not even putting male and female. They're leaving them blank. We, we're living in a society where we've exchanged the truth for a lie, where recently I was reading the story of a 17-year-old girl in Minnesota who went in and had a, uh, the operation to become a boy. And she took these uh, the medications and the surgery, and all without her parent knowing about it. And when her parent found out about it, they tried to, to intervene, and even the high state court says you have no right. It's interesting that you have to have a parent's signature for an aspirin, but the agenda of, in this situation is that you can have, actually have a surgery and your parents don't even have no right to be privy to it. It's a reality that's been created by our society, and it all started with an attack on the truth when God, did God really say did God really say in Hebrews 9.27 that it's appointed men once to die and then the judgment? Is that real? Or can we create a reality of our own that our God is too loving, that God would never put judgment on anyone? Perhaps our reality that there's nothing after death. Perhaps it's like the Williams, the Ted Williams, that after you're dead you go into the grave and there's nothing more. Did God really say in Ephesians 2.11 that all men are dead in their trespasses and sins? Can we deny this reality? If that's the case, then there's no need to be born again. There's no need to submit to the things of God. There's no need for a resurrection. Did God really say in John 14.6 that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus? Is that reality? If that's not your reality then you can go through Muhammad or Buddha or whoever that you want to go through. Or perhaps everyone, our reality, and you'll hear this often, that, that my God, you'll hear that, well, my God 
would do this or my God would do that. It's never the God of the Scripture when you hear those conversations. You'll see a lot of times, well, Jesus, and again, it's which Jesus are you talking about because there's the Jesus of the Scripture and then there's the Jesus of people's own making and their own reality. There's the Jesus of Islam. There's the Jesus of Confucius. There's all these different. And then there's reality of what the truth actually is. Reality can be denied. It can be suppressed, but it can't be changed. Regardless of the sincerity, and that's what we hear a lot, well, they're, they're really sincere about their belief. Deny it, suppress it, but you can't change it. What options did the Shunammite woman, Shunammite woman have if she would have denied reality? Perhaps she says, you know what, maybe he's not really dead. What happens if we look at people in their sin this way? Maybe they're not really dead. Maybe she would have cleaned him up, dressed him up, propped him up on the couch, spoke to him, treated him as he was alive, have visitors treat him as if he was alive. Maybe she could change his environment, take him outside, put him in the sun. She could, but it wouldn't change reality. He would still be dead. Fortunately, this woman lived in the reality, and here's, here's something to catch. Here's what reality does. It reduces us to the truth. That's what reality does. It reduces us to the truth. Reality forced this woman to cast herself on the mercy and grace of God alone. There was no other hope. Her reality was that she had a dead son and that only God could help her. And in the same way, if we're ever to see our family, our loved ones, be made alive in Christ, then we have to come to a grasp on that reality of their spiritual state. And it's sometimes difficult, especially when we're talking about family, because we want to hope the best. We want to believe that you know how much you love that person, and you just can't imagine certain truths applying to somebody that, from a worldly standard, is such a good person, such a good son or a good father. But the Lord says we have to deal in reality, that that person, their righteousness is filthy rags. And in comparison to God, that there's, there's no sin that will enter heaven. That person must be born again. That person must be resurrected. Reality reduces us to the truth that that person has to experience a miracle. And it reduces us to the truth that all we can do is cast them on the mercy and grace of God. When the lady got to Elisha, it says that she was deeply troubled when she fell at the feet of this prophet. So listen to this once again. It says, faith does not shield you from trouble or even shield you from a distressed heart. What faith does, it gives us hope in someone greater than that trouble, greater than that burden, or greater than the reality that we're in. This lady had hope, even though her present reality was heartbreaking. She had hope. It's been said that Christ is our rock, and at times we may tremble on this rock, but the rock beneath us never trembles. Isn't that the life of faith? Sometimes you wonder how you're going to go forward, yet you know the promises, you know that Christ is the rock. And there's times where all you can do is take one step in front of the other. And it's hard at some times. There's a simplicity to our faith, but there's also a very hard reality to our faith. But it's comforting to know that no matter how we tremble, how we stumble, how we fall, the rock beneath us, which is Christ, never trembles, never shakes. God himself is never fretting. Imagine how this day started for this lady. And that's how trouble sometimes comes. We wake up in the morning. She probably prepared breakfast for her husband and her son. It was a normal morning. She sent them out to the field. And the next thing she knows, just like in Job's case, out of nowhere, and you've all experienced it probably, you've got a phone call or devastating news just out of nowhere, and it seems to shatter your world, really. That's what happened with this lady. Everything was perfect that morning. And now at noon, it says, it's interesting that God gives us such specific details. At noon that day, the boy died in her lap. And reality reduced her to those two truths, that her son was dead, and only God could change that. 
we can only imagine how distressed and, and troubled she must have been. But somewhere deep down, there was this spark of hope. And perhaps it was even small as a mustard seed. But that she was convinced that not only God could raise her son from the dead, but that he would raise her son from the dead. Maybe she heard about the widow of Zarephath. That's where Elijah, same, almost same circumstances. He was, had a prophet's room. This widow would take care of him. Had a, had a prophet's room in her place. Her son died. Elijah did the same thing. Took the boy up, laid him on the bed, became personally involved, eye to eye, mouth to mouth. And that's another whole sermon, but it talks about the personal contact that we have to have with the dead. And that they start to wax warm. In other words, our influence. We start to see signs of life. Our influence, but yet we still, that's not where to stop. We have to keep going until we see the miraculous rebirth, until life is coming uh, from within them. That your life influencing them can do one thing, but it can't create life within them. Only God can do that. Perhaps she heard about this story. She probably knew about it. Elisha certainly knew about it. Intellectually knowing about God or what God can do is not faith. Again, I think Christians a lot of times get stuck in this rut. Intellectually, we know what God can do. But our big question is, will he do it for us? That lady embraced God with a faith that that went to work. I think she would agree with our New Testament truth that, that we find that faith without works is dead. See, she, she embraced the promise of God through the prophet Elisha that she would have a son. She laid him on the prophet's bed. She shut the door behind her, and she wasn't anticipating a funeral by any means. Strictly because of that promise of God. So she started that journey from Shunem to Mount Carmel, And when she got to Elisha, she refused to leave the man of God. Even though the servant had had ran ahead and got the staff, laid it on the boy's head, she knew, and she wouldn't settle for a substitute. How many times do we settle for a substitute? Again, back to the strategies and all the different ways that we try to bring, bring life to people. We've tried everything from Christian radio to Christian nagging, and it doesn't always work. It has to be the Holy Spirit working in the, uh, in the power of God alone. We, we talked about this morning in Sunday school class that it says that men are blinded. They're dead and they're trespassing and they're blinded. And the scripture says that they're strongholds. There's these arguments that they're, that they're uh, um, entrenched with. And the picture there is that, that people, when they're in lostness, when they're in that darkness, they retreat, they retreat to this, this mental place in their mind and all the arguments that they have of why they, they don't follow Christ. And it says only through prayer, only through the power of the Holy Spirit, only through reality coming by the power of the truth are those arguments, it says, to break them down, to tear them down. And that's why it's so important to trust in God alone for those who are in need of resurrection. Verse 30 says, The mother of the lad said, As the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will not leave you. And he arose and followed her. This woman's hope was fully resting in the man of God, Elisha, the prophet Elisha. Her faith led her to action. It was a stubborn action. It was a stubborn action. Not only could it be done, but she was going to see that it would be done. When we refuse to believe in the promises of God, what it is, Well, this morning we've examined just one account in one place in the scripture how God intervened in this woman's life. And we don't know her name, but we do know her story. And it's a story that wouldn't have ended well short of God's resurrection power. I think every one of us this morning knows someone, or perhaps it's ourselves, that are headed down a path in life that's not going to end well. Not in this life or in eternity. And maybe, maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you've had seasons of life that um, off and on through the years where you've made concentrated efforts to do what's right, to, to live the Christian life, to be, a, to be a good moral person, to go to church. But for some reason, something about Christianity just isn't working. Something just isn't 
sticking. There's nothing in the heart. There's no life. There's no desires for the things of God. You hear people talking about this, this resurrected life and this power. And, and we know as Christians, we all go through seasons where that may not be the prevailing characteristic of our heart. But we know that we've got life and that God put life there and, and took a heart of stone and, and gave us a heart of flesh. Maybe that's you this morning. You said, to be honest, there's never been a change. There's never been a resurrection in my own life. And could it be that perhaps you've missed the simplicity of the gospel? Could it be that you've done a lot of things, but you've never done the work that God requires, and that's to believe in the one he has sent, Jesus Christ. I'm going to close with, a, with this story of a, probably one of the greatest preachers who ever lived, Charles Spurgeon. And he recounts his conversion story. Talks about how he was raised in a godly environment. His grandfather was a preacher. He was around Christians constantly. He was the influence under the influence of... Well, this morning we've examined just one account in one place in the Scripture how God intervened in this woman's life. And we don't know her name, but we do know her story. And it's a story that wouldn't have ended well short of God's resurrection power. And I think every one of us this morning knows someone, or perhaps it's ourselves, that are headed down a path in life that's not going to end well, not in this life or in eternity. And maybe, maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you've had seasons of life that um, off and on through the years where you've made concentrated efforts to do what's right, to, to live the Christian life, to be, a, to be a good moral person, to go to church. But for some reason, something about Christianity just isn't working. Something just isn't sticking. There's nothing in the heart. There's no life. There's no desires for the things of God. You hear people talking about this, this resurrected life and this power. And, and we know as Christians, we all go through seasons where that may not be the prevailing characteristic of our heart but we know that we've got life and that God put life there and, and took a heart of stone and, and gave us a heart of flesh and maybe that's you this morning you said to be honest there's never been a change there's never been a resurrection in my own life and could it be that perhaps you've missed the simplicity of the gospel could it be that you've done a lot of things but you've never done the work that God requires, and that's to believe in the one he has sent, Jesus Christ. I'm going to close with, a, with this story of a, probably one of the greatest preachers who ever lived, Charles Spurgeon. And he recounts his conversion story. Talks about how he was raised in a godly environment. His grandfather was a preacher. He was around Christians constantly, he was the influence, under the influence of regular preaching. He read the scriptures faithfully. But he knew that something was still missing. He knew that salvation itself had escaped him. He knew that there wasn't new life in Christ beating in his heart. So he became a very miserable person. You see, he was dealing with reality. He knew what the scripture said. He knew that he needed to be born again. He just didn't know how to get there. One Sunday morning, he was walking to his church that he normally attended, and because of a snowstorm, he got diverted, and he ended up in a little primitive Methodist church. He said maybe there was 15 or so people there, and because of the snowstorm, the regular preacher couldn't be there. So a layman who Spurgeon describes as a very simple man and probably not very prepared for the sermon, uh, but he was probably the deacon and had to, he began to preach one verse, and that would be the scripture that would bring Spurgeon to a saving knowledge of Christ. Spurgeon says that I've, he had heard scripture and he wasn't saying it wasn't profitable. Everything was leading up to that moment. Nothing was wasted, but it was this one particular scripture that really bared the Holy Spirit opened up and he seen Christ for the first time. And the scripture was in Isaiah 45, 22. It says, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. 
Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And after ten minutes of preaching on this one verse, the layman fixed his eyes on Spurgeon, and he said, Young man, you look very miserable, and you will be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, Only as a primitive Methodist could do, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. And Spurgeon goes on to say, I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. I'd been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness was rolled away. And at that moment, I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks to him alone. All oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you, Lord, for the simplicity of the gospel. Lord, truly you say to look unto you, Lord, to come as we are, uh, sin-stained and broken, and uh, Lord, with no other hope but to cast ourselves on the mercy and grace of God. And you say that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And God, perhaps for someone here this morning, that, um, that they've made several attempts uh, to walk the Christian life, to do the Christian thing. But Lord, something has still been missing. That peace has evaded. Uh, hope is seldom. And God, you're saying that even now where they stand, they can look unto you in faith and embrace your promise of eternal life. And God, that's, that's my prayer, that your Holy Spirit would bring and bear reality all of us this morning and that God that it would not leave us that you would continue to convict Lord not only of sin judgment and righteousness but of the hope in Christ and God there's the bad news of who we are in sin that we can be redeemed we can be resurrected and you're willing and waiting uh, to grant that forgiveness in Christ alone and so God that's where we are this morning we bring to you nothing in our hands Lord, we pray to leave nothing, uh, to leave without uh, anything but you this morning. And, uh, so, God, we thank you, and we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.